Welcome to the WP Tonic Podcast, brought to you by WPTonic.com, a WordPress maintenance and support service for business owners. We talk to the leaders in WordPress, business, and online marketing communities, bringing you insights on how to grow your business and achieve success. Welcome back, folks, to the WP Tonic Show, roundtable show. It's 368. We record this live every Friday at 8.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. And you can watch it live on the WP Tonic Facebook page. And if you want to leave any comments during the discussion, please feel free to do that. Got a great panel. Uh, I've got some really interesting stories. I think I've done quite well this week. I think it's going to be a lively discussion. Spencer... Would you like to quickly introduce yourself to the new listeners and viewers? Sure. Hi, it's Spencer Foreman from WPLaunchify.com. That's great. And John, would you like to quickly introduce yourself? John John Locke from LockDM Designing SEO. Uh, we got Sally joining us again. Been away for a few weeks, sorely missed. That has returned. I'd like to introduce yourself, Sally. Certainly. I'm Sally Getch, the WP fangirl, organizer of the East Bay WordPress meetup in Cali- Oakland, California. And we've got Chris as well. Would you like to introduce yourself, Chris? I'm Chris Badgett. I help course creators with software, and I have a podcast on course creation called LMS Cast. You can find me at lifterlms.com. And he's also the CEO of Lifter LMS. He's been he's been a bit shy there, but there we go. Uh, um, <laughs> right, uh, I was in two minds. We had a bit of a discussion about this, but I do publicise the show as in, you know we talk about the latest news stories in WordPress and on the web generally. So, I've, so let's go for it. Yoastcon overshadowed by Twitter storm. Joyce Yerk Divirk. SEO industry leader called out for ob- ob- objectifying women. I, I don't know. Ob- objectifying and yoast. Objectifying women. God. J O O S T. Objectifying women. Um, and the tavern, it's the lead story on the tavern. So I thought I had to go for John. What do you think of this story, John? Okay. So um, <coughs> I'll just preface this by saying that. Uh, there are some some truths being mixed with uh, a, a little bit of propaganda. So uh, some of the people who are tweeting this out, they're people that I've been following on Twitter. Um, I don't know them. I don't know Yoast. I don't know, you know, a, a lot of the people who are involved in this. But basically what happened is there is a coordinated effort with a handful of people in the SEO industry. Uh, to uh, take over the YoastCon hashtag. And basically what, what I perceive that they're doing is they're trying to call out what, what they think is fake male feminism. And there's a couple targets that they have, um, some notable people. I don't think that Yoast or, or the company is necessarily the main target. Uh, but I... What they have a gripe with, I think, is the objectification of women. And there are a couple incidents that were mentioned somewhere in this stream uh, that seem to be legit, where they know of female people who were at SEO conferences in the last few years 
that were groped or harassed and went forward uh, to whoever was running the conference and it was all swept under the rug. Now, I don't know who was involved or what, and I don't know if there is no consequences because they were connected to somebody or, or what the story is, but that seems to be part of the beef. The other part of the beef, I think, is uh, there is an element, I think, of personal vendettas against specific people in the SEO industry, specific people that are being called out. Um, but what happened with this hashtag is they dug up footage from a 2011 uh, promo video that was shot uh, by another prominent SEO in Europe. Um, SEO Oktoberfest 2011, where it shows uh, Yoast and a couple other, you know, other SEOs uh, partying and drinking. And um, I guess there is German playmates from 2011 at this party. So I, I, I think it was all to kind of sensationalize this and maybe to, I think part of it was to kind of attack some of the people that they have a beef with in the SEO industry. But I think there is an element where they are trying to bring light to the fact that there is uh, some element of objectification and harassment that is still swept underneath the rug. Yeah, I think you've, I think you've put the story really fantastic there because there seems to be two sides to this. There, there seems to be a very serious part of it, and then a very flirtatious. Um, element and who the, the people behind this seem to have mixed the two together in a, a real concoction, a, a, a brew. Um, unless some of the other panelists want to comment on this, I think we're going to move on to the other story because I wasn't aware of the real serious part of this story, which it's early days, and I think. I would not want to comment on it myself until it's clarified that the serious part of the allegations made in the, in this Twitter storm have been clarified. Yeah, I, I you know I have very little information. I have heard in the past about various conferences that some you know that people received unwanted advances of of some kind. Um, you know, but, uh, and I'm sure that it does happen sometimes, uh, but yeah, I have, I have no information in this case. Obviously it's not acceptable behavior. Uh, and, you know, some of this, uh, some of the uh, <clears throat> things that we've seen are not acceptable behavior, but yes, I don't, uh, it was not Yoast who, uh, <clears throat> who hired the uh, playmates so far as I can tell. And it does seem as, as if, you know, having somebody who is a competitor put out a lot of really hostile uh, uh, information makes it uh, suspicious in and of itself. Um, and I do, you know, I do wonder, though, you know, is this the kind of thing we're going to see more of, you know, used as a weapon versus used to bring... Uh, you know, actual problems to light. Uh, yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? All right, let's move on because I don't think the other panelists want to call me on this. Uh, um, 
So, um, and I don't blame them. So on to a story that Morton, um, who's a regular panellist, unfortunately couldn't make it today, um, on corporate takeover of the cathedral and the bazaar. What do you think of this one, um, Spencer? I didn't read this story. I, I, I got thrown off because you said we we're going to talk about the one we just passed on. <laughs> I, I know it's confusing. Um, John, what did you think of this one? Um, pass for a minute. All right. I think we go on to the story. Uh, let, let me I have a positive thing. oration. Yeah. On this. I, I want to interject an option. But, Here's an option. If you're not yeah. comfortable talking about the Yoast story, I read a story that was interesting about what Jeff Bezos just did. Oh, you're going to bring that up, are you? In, rela- <laughs> Hold on. In, relation- in relationship to David Pecker at, uh, you know, at the, what's the name? I, I, I brain farted up, but. They, they were threatening him, National Enquirer. They were threatening Bezos with all this dirt about his uh, new girlfriend and the compromising photos of his uh, dick pics and everything else. And his response was, to me, reflection upon this other story, but we can leave the other story aside. And that is to say, I don't know if you all know this story, but basically the National Enquirer's David Pecker, who is, uh, let's say, uh, stumping for the president in some ways, people could say objectively, has threatened in writing through his counsel, extortionist type of threats of if you don't wave off knowing anything about this and deny this and then the other thing, that we're going to release all these pictures in a compromising way of you and your girlfriend and your genitalia and everything else. And Bezos's response was the thing that I think is reflective of this problem in society that also comes out in the show story, which is does not deny that things. He publishes them in Medium. He says, I did all this stuff. These are my things. It wasn't right. It wasn't great. I did it when I did it. But you can judge me on the totality of my life's work. At the same time, this is extortion, illegal extortion. And I would just say, without saying the facts of the other story, that everybody in 2008 was a bad actor of some kind. But how does anybody improve in society if some other person can reach back in history, grab circumstances and facts, pull them up to today, and hold them out in a way to extort somebody. And whether you call it actual extortion or just sort of coercion, the point is, if the victim allegedly claims this was not, I wasn't a victim, if the victim herself is saying, hey, this is like we're all just being goofballs, I think that's the same reflection. Jeff Bezos is acting in a way which, again, you can love him or hate him, I would do myself in his position, which is like, hey, I'm the number one richest guy in the world. I went, worked this whole thing myself from zero to, you know, whatever it is. And yeah, I did a lot of stupid shit, including this. But this douchebag is extorting me. I mean, this is the, the, the letter of the law. And I Blackmail think there's crime. elements of that in this other story, which is like, if the victim's not complaining and you're pulling this out now, a certain number of years later, trying to put the 2008 into 2019, why? Because it's clearly motivated by something, whatever it may be. And that's the problem of society. We now have an archive. I have a photo of myself I dragged up for something that was like from me when I was 25 years old. It's like I had no recollection of it because it wasn't a digital photo. We now have every single thing we do every day recorded and archived somewhere. If in 50 years the people in the future look back on us, we'll look like the biggest morons ever. Because every single mistake yeah, and flub we ever made. Perspective. Exactly. So right. that's, that's the story. Right. Do you feel I better? Fill, I had to fill in the, 
Yeah. Do you feel Spencer? Yeah, do you feel better, Spencer? First start. Yeah. Right. Um, Sally, um, your take on um, the Malton article. Okay. <clears throat> so. Uh, <clears throat> What Morton says here is the origins of the open source movement are rooted in equity and distribution of power. Uh, It's built on the underlying assumption that everyone has equal availability and availability, equal ability and availability to actually take part in the community. Um, And uh, that is an assumption uh, that is proving to be problematic. And this is why he's he's talking about, well, you know, you see this sort of corporate takeover of um, open source because uh, these are the people who can afford to show up that, you know, ordinary folks uh, cannot. And, you know, this this was an issue raised by uh, more than one person at at, uh, WordCamp US. Uh, Ordinary People, if you're a you know one person shop, there's not that much of your time that you can contribute uh, to working on open source projects because you have to make a living. Uh, and there are now many companies that pay people to be full time WordPress contributors, uh, but you know shouldn't there maybe be some kind of option for people who are not at those companies um you know of of fund to support this or or something of that sort and uh you know it, it we could get to the point uh in theory where you know the only people taking part in open source are <clears throat> Uh, that where the only people taking uh, part in open source are the, um, you know, are the employees of corporations, and therefore it is really not very open. Um, and this sent me down a bit of a rabbit hole uh, because the issue is that um, a whole lot of our society is actually predicated on these same ideas uh, that many uh, institutions rely on volunteers. And you see there's a lot of stuff that, you know, starts in universities. Well, students, for the most part, have somebody uh, paying their way to school, and so they have more time and energy. Now, there are many people who are working while they're they're in school, and some of them still do amazing extra stuff. But in a lot of cases, uh, you know, we've had a situation where it's kind of like, you know, prior to the Reformation, uh, rich people used to pay folks to pray for them. Uh, And at about the same time and even further back, they used to sometimes pay people to think for them. Uh, at at universities, still do. Yes, uh, to some to some degree, there are you know there are people in universities who have uh, jobs that are purely research, uh, and uh, but it is people with privilege who are in a position to volunteer. And this sent me all the way back to Aristotle in the politics where he's talking about education and he has a line that basically says, um, you know, uh, if you have to make a living 
If you, if you have to work for money, it will degrade your mind. And if you have to do certain kinds of work, it will also degrade your body. Uh, and, and you are not, a, a you know, and so th- those kinds of things are not fit for people who are going to be truly uh, educated. And, and it has essentially always been on the independently wealthy, uh, or at least the people with a, another source of support to do things. In America, there's a huge tradition of uh, women volunteering. And, uh, you know, they were supported by their uh, husbands back in a day when such a thing was actually possible. And uh, they went out and did good works in the community. And a lot of the institutions that rely on volunteers have suffered in the past decades because uh, everybody is working and people do not have as much time uh, or energy to spare uh, to do that kind of thing. And... uh, it is a problem. Uh, it's a it's a big problem. Uh, I don't know what the solution is because you know, we're trying to move into, we're, you know, we're trying to be a more egalitarian society. We want more people to be able to participate. We want more people to be educated. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, part of the, you know, part of what has spurred Morton into his crusade about ethics is that we're all here so busy doing our our labor uh you know and it, it might not be uh, <clears throat> picking cotton but uh if you're just struggling to make the bills you don't have a lot of time to spend on the broader questions of is you know is is this the right thing to be doing how you know how am i making my decisions what is the you know what is the yeah. best way to carry on a life yeah, uh, obviously Morton was on last week, and we had he, cu- he covered some of the bits that you've covered, but you also covered a little bit of new stuff as well, Sally. And thanks for that. My take on it before we go on to the other story is that that, that that's just the reality of the situation, and who are running the project, running WordPress, should be aware of that. It's a, it's a, it's it's reason. It's reasonably obvious that if you just use the parameter of those that spend the most time on the project should have the biggest voice. You, you're, if that's your only parameter, you're going to end up with a very lopsided project or um, whatever you want to call WordPress. And it's the same in any business. And I'm sure Chris would would... You know, if uh, if only profit is the only parameter that you're going to judge the success of your business, that will have consequences. Um, it's like if you take only one parameter, one judgment, and that is the only key judgment call for any organisation, it's going to become pretty lopsided. Would you agree with that, Chris, or do you think I'm just waffling? No, you're not waffling. Um, you know, the, there's a movement in conscious business that's been around for a long time called the triple bottom line, which is people, planet, profit. There's more to business than just making money. There's people involved and, you know, we're all trying to make the world a better place or at least perhaps our business can help in some way. But there's also more to motivating and rewarding people for contribution than just money. Um, there's a bunch of research on this in the social science, but something called self-determination theory I learned from my friend Peter. But this thing that motivates people besides 
money is autonomy. So that's like personal freedom and the ability to do your own thing. Relatedness or connection to other people. When, when you go to a WordCamp as an example or engage in the WordPress community, you, uh, there are people there that are motivated by the human connections and friendships and the community relationships that emerge. And then there's also competence is a motivator. If you're getting better and better at marketing or coding or design, and this open source thing is helping, these are all motivators outside of money. So what Morton's saying is, how do we compensate people? Well, there's, there's other ways. And I think a lot of it actually just comes down to, uh, if we're concerned about the corporations taking over the, the bazaar and having too much influence, it's, a, it's about being transparent and open about uh, you know, being a good citizen in that culture or that community. And one of the things, like one of the ways I look at that is, <clears throat> so with my business, Lifter LMS, we make profit off of WordPress. We make profit off of the WordPress community. We also have an incredibly powerful free plugin in the WordPress repository that lots of people are using and get a ton of value out of free. So we're, doing, we're being a good global citizen by, it's a give and take. We pay money to sponsor WordCamps to help make them happen. So we're giving back. Um, so, but there are, when you look at a WordPress company as an example, um, I think it's important to acknowledge, is this company just trying to extract and mine as much value and drive as much profit as possible from, through this ecosystem? Or is there some give and take involved? You know, we give a credible, incredible amount of value by having a really feature-rich WordPress LMS plugin in the WordPress repository. But in exchange, we get incredible distribution to every website or WordPress website in the world. I was really happy to recently see Jack over at WP Fusion release his, um, uh, his plugin core on the WordPress repository too. That's, when I see a move like that, I'm like, that's great. It's, it's a good business move, but it's also good for the project and the community. So if there are corporate interests coming into WordPress, I think... It's really an exercise in journalism and fact finding to lay out like, okay, what are these? What are what are they taking and what are they giving, and and, and to to see that balance because that's it's just like transparency of seeing uh, people's tax returns and different things like that. Like, let's just see, let me, let's make sure there's some give and take going on here. Yeah, I think that's great. I think we'll go on to the next story. Um, and then we go for a break. Um, cut the big five tech giants from my life. It was hell. And Gizimodo is a story from there. I thought it was a fantastic story, actually. And I like the report's take. What did you find? What did you think of this one, Spencer? Yeah, I, I think she quoted it. <laughs> she says it was like a digital juice cleanse. Um, the, the takeaway on this one, we should just skip to the ending, is if you're living in the reality of 2019, cutting yourself off from the big five is essentially like being a modern day Luddite of, you know, going into the factory and trying to burn down the machines because they're taking the jobs. You really cannot escape that reality. We've talked in other shows and I've enjoyed certain minimalist versions of this, like turning your iPhone screen to black and white. So I don't want to look at Facebook and stuff. And of course, I don't think Facebook's included in this, but when it comes to infrastructure, 
especially Amazon and everything else, it's really, 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 really hard to imagine a world where you can live without this stuff unless your entire universe is like living inside of some bubble where you never leave the house. And even then it's getting harder because other than reading books and watching old, you know, DVDs or VHS tapes, everything comes to you now through some connection with one of those services. Yeah. My take, sorry, my take of this before I throw it over to the other panelists is, is, is that these, these tech giants, these four or five, they're all embracing and it's fundamentally clear to me now that all of them need to be broken up um, into smaller companies. Because that worked so well with AT&T. Oh, that, well, why, where, did, where did you come to that decision? Because I'm going to interject. I think that's the knee-jerk reaction that historically has led to idiotic things. And again, the Sherman Act, the Clayton Act, and all the antitrust laws from the robber baron days of the railroad, and I'm speaking with my lawyer hat on a little bit, have demonstrated that the one thing that a single industry can do well is to control where all the parts come and then organize it. And if we look at SpaceX today, that's the clearest way to demonstrate how having a privately funded company, well, in this case, a public company, but a private company that gets the same thing that we were doing in the 60s with 500 million separate contractors done today in a leaner, meaner way, sure, it needs to be, you know, have oversight and sure, it needs to have boundaries, but you need the brains and the like ability to move like this. When you start breaking up something that works simply because it's working, that's the opposite of common sense. And yeah, it sucks that Amazon does everything so goddamn well. But you know what? I love that it does everything so goddamn well because I don't see any evil intentions right now. So maybe you have the kind of two key like safety net that if you guys ever go past this line, we're going to turn the keys and turn you off. But until then, I say, let them keep going. I mean, this is the best. It's the best. Why break it up? Um, How's that for contrarian? No, it's fine. I, I think your example of um, NASA and SpaceX, I, I think your actual example there is intellectually totally flawed. No, I'm talking about NASA after the end of Apollo and what happened with the space shuttle and the, and the space contracts. Use the railroads as an example. Look at what has become of the railroads. You know, sure, you know, J Carnegie and all the other guys, like, you know, turned this into their own playground. But, like, when the railroads needed to work, they worked because one company kind of controlled it. Of course, there's got to be limits. The airline industry, same way. But at the end of the day, when you break stuff up and then say, like, let's all bid against it, it turns into chaos. Nobody runs anything well. Well, I, I obviously being a European, um, I, um, I totally disagree with your position there. Um, but let's throw it over to some of the other panelists. Sally, what did you think of the uh, Well, um, I mean, it was an interesting experiment she conducted. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's kind of like, all right, so this is like, you know, it, proves a point to us about how deeply embedded these things are in our lives. But, you know, um, I, I, I'm trying to read a paper book right now that I, you know, it's a rereading a, a, a book that I have and I'm like, I cannot see that. And, and it's an old enough book. It's not even avail available for this window. Um, and I do have a dumb phone, but uh, yeah, the, the 
there is no matter what you think about these companies, people are not going to just give all this this stuff up um, because it is useful to us, and um, you know, and we use a lot of other things. Uh, that are dubious, you know, most people in America have cars. A few people are in a, who live in places where they don't have to have cars. And if they don't want to, to, uh, to own one, they, they don't need to. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it is kind of like, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The specific identity of the companies is, it may be different from what it was a hundred years ago. Uh, the, general situation that you know our <clears throat> our lives are to some degree controlled uh, by the companies that make the stuff we use is not new i want to, I want to put this to chris um i've no real evidence for this but fundamentally since 9 11 i think all these four to five companies have been very um flexible and assisted in governments, the British and the American government, in their um, want to spy on American and British citizens and to spy on people all over the world. You know, after Snowden's um, statements, um, it's pretty obvious that's what both these governments want to do. And that's what these four to five companies have helped the state achieved that isn't that a little bit worrying chris privacy is always worrying i think governments will always care about uh you know information and having intel both of their people and also the the other countries that they're on both good and bad terms with it's not going to go away um What's happened is just like the military industrial complex, you know, became manufacturing in America, the war machine became the economic engine. You can see the same thing where, you know, intelligence is now big business, but it's, it often trickles down from the government. Um, So that's just something that happens a lot. I mean, we don't know what kind of, uh, you know, aircraft, the bleeding edge of aircraft that are the United States, as an example, government has out there that they're using. Uh, we'll find out about what's current now, 30 years from now for the, the most top secret stuff. But privacy is not going away. And I think my big takeaway from this article is, number one, that people should go camping. And I just say that because... Uh, you can do your juice cleanse and your digital <laughs> detox by going out into the wilderness and not bringing your phone, even if it's just for 10 minutes and just do a quick reset. That's, you know, that's what like a, a juice cleanse is just to get some perspective. But I think it's important not to go down the all or nothing thinking rabbit hole. Like all this stuff is all bad or it's all good. <clears throat> I love the, the most important phrase in this article from my opinion was, um, slow where i forget where he said it slow something slow slow internet so there's like a slow food movement there's a uh a slow fashion movement like i was at the uh, beach a little while ago and i i went into one of those really cheap stores and i got a bathing suit for like 15 bucks 
I literally wore it once, and then the next day the zipper was like didn't work anymore. And that's that's called fast fashion. The same thing is going on with the internet. We all know about fast food, and it's probably it's not really that good for us, especially on a regular basis. So there's like this whole slow local food movement thing. But I think we can have we can take advantage of the best of the internet and the infrastructure like Amazon has built and the connectivity through Facebook and um, uh, you know email and social networks, Instagram, whatever. But sometimes we got to slow it down and just be conscious about our usage, perhaps our addictions that are in there and uh, and just balance it out. Because if you're doing fast internet, always online, always connected, always um, just reliant on it, that's that's the definition of addiction. So yeah, tone it down a little bit. That's That's my takeaway. Yeah, I, I, obviously that that was a great um, insight into the article, John. You know what? You know with what the Chinese government is doing in China with the Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities. And Spencer um, remarked on it last week with their social marking system. Are we not walking in uh, totally blind into a dystopia future quite rapidly? Uh, yeah, quite rapidly. As as was mentioned before, ever since nine uh, eleven and the Patriot Act, um, y- you there have been like new laws um, as far as uh, intelligence, like having the capabilities to demand information from your social networks. Uh, not that your social networks don't sell your data anyway, uh, but I. I I do think that there there needs to be um, more regulation, kind of like they broke up the phone companies uh, when we were kids. Um, I think that they, you know, there's a couple companies on this list that could probably be regulated. Uh, Google is probably the closest thing to a monopoly on this list. Um, of, of the five companies, I think Facebook is is the one that most of us could ditch most easily. I think a lot of people stay on it because that's where their friends hang out and it's just an easy way to communicate. Yes. I don't think Facebook was actually part of her list. Um, It was actually. I think it was actually. I I think the hardest for me would be, uh, you know, ditching Apple and Microsoft because, I mean, how do you, um, you know, as a digital worker, you're going to have to have either Apple or Microsoft, or you're going to have to put together your own computer uh, to to work. Um, I, I think those sorts of things are the hardest. But uh, like Chris mentioned, I, I think it's okay to not be so connected to it because if you think back 25 years ago, we didn't rely on any of these things, or even 20 years ago. And like the the frog in the, in the boiling pot. You know, it's become ubiquitous very quickly. So I, I think you know, tapering down um, the dopamine hits that uh, you know digital services give us uh, might be a way to <clears throat> go back to a simpler time uh, where we didn't have to fill every um, resting moment with some sort of a digital uh, interlude. 
Right, we're going to go for a break, folks. But before we do that, um, before I do that, I want to mention one of my great sponsors, and that's WP Fusion. And what is WP Fusion? It puts your tech, your, the two leading parts of your tech stack on steroids. That's WordPress and uh, the CRM of your choice. And that and WP Fusion allows you to use over 40 different CRMs. And what it will do for you and your clients, well, basically, if you've got a membership site, a learning management system, or e-commerce, it will put your marketing on steroids. The information gathering and the automation you will be able to achieve um, through your CRM will be breathtaking. And if that sounds interesting for yourself or your, for your clients, go to the WP Fusion website and WP Fusion has given WP Tonic exclusive offer. If you use WP Tonic or uppercase, you will get 25% off any of their packages. And that is exclusively only offered to you listeners and viewers. We'll be back in a few moments, folks. Do you want to spend more time making money online? Then use WP Tonic as your trusted WordPress developer partner. They will keep your WordPress website secure and up to date so you can concentrate on the things that make you money. Examples of WP Tonic's client services are landing pages, page layouts, widgets, updates, and modifications. WP Tonic is well known and trusted in the WordPress community. They stand behind their work with full, no question asked, 30 day money back guarantee. So don't delay. Sign up with WP Tonic today. That's wp-tonic.com just like the podcast we're coming back we've had an interesting discussion German boogie ladies Facebook spying on you, that's a big surprise listeners and viewers isn't it, the cockroaches of Facebook spying on you uh, um, <laughs> oh God. Um, onto story three much nicer um, how to create a multi-language WordPress site so, Chris, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're the C- joint CEO of Lifter. You know, you're in the education. You know, this must be an important thing that you come across regularly. You know, how do you make a um, course website multilingual? Um, what did you think of the article? I thought it was really good. Um, and I think there's a lot of confusion out there of what a multilingual website is and what your options are as a business owner or, or a website owner of what you can do. I think the first thing that people need to be aware of is that browsers like Google um, can translate websites. And those translations are not always 100% awesome or perfect or whatever, but they're they do a great job. Like if I go visit um, a website that's in Brazil or whatever, it will Google will ask me, do I want to see this website in English? And I click yes, and it, it'll translate it for me. There's also WordPress plugins that um, you know will put a bunch of flags on the side or at the top of your website that can uh, initiate the translation where people can click on their, their country and it will translate the website for you. That's not what a multi lingual language website is where it's it's more intentional and it's done by um, not the search engine. The challenge that I see with this that with learning sites is that um, you can't translate a video or an audio file, which is often a big part of learning. Um, so what we see people actually doing is not 
uh, using the multilingual plugins, but actually doing a um, like a you know espanol domain name dot com and, and then a French one and then a German one and whatever languages they need, and then their homepage just has easy navigation to get to the correct language. However, if your website or your business marketing site is just mostly text and images. Then the uh, multilingual um, website, the the multilingual switching um, tools, and and the great tool like with uh, the Weglot one is a great choice. But there's a, there's a lot of nuances to translation, so I just wanted to put those variables on the table for this conversation. What did you think of the article, Sally? Are you a mute, Sally? Sorry, I was coughing. Um, I have uh, looked at multilingual uh, sites occasionally, and uh, it does add a huge layer of complexity. There are all kinds of questions about, you know, site structure and SEO and this and and that, uh, in addition to just the fact that, yeah, no language actually maps 100% onto any other language, and you may be best served... Um, uh, by, uh, you know, having a native speaker of, of whatever lang other language you need, you know, kind of not simply translate, but rewrite some things. And of course, that can get expensive uh, if you're paying for people uh, to do it. Um, I'm stuck on the line in the article about, you know, for uh, for every U.S. dollar spent on localization, a business will make a return of $25. And I think that um, is not going to be universal for every business. Uh, you know, they, they talk a bit in the article about, well, if you've, you know, if you've got a store selling stuff, you know, people are going to want to shop in their own language. And that's probably true if, if it's the kind of stuff that people want anywhere and if um, shipping costs aren't an issue. And of course, many people do live in countries that have several dominant languages. And it obviously is going to make sense to do that. But, you know, I'm trying to think of the potential value of putting my own website in more than one language. And um, I, I, I'm not really seeing it because, I, I mean, I, it's maybe people would want to read some of the, the tutorials, but... Um, you know, since I don't know other languages well enough to work exclusively in them with people, I mean, I can read a little French and a little German and a little Italian and a little more modern Greek. Um, but, uh, you know, I can't operate in those languages. I can't provide anybody support in those languages. Uh, you know, if I'm going to work with people, it has to be people who speak English. Uh, then I'm not sure that there would be any, you know, it, it seems like it would be kind of a bait and switch. Yeah, good points. What do you do, think, John? Yeah, I, I, here's the thing. For a lot of businesses, unless you're doing uh, business just within your zip code and a 50-mile radius uh, around that, a lot of the businesses that I've been working with uh, recently could probably benefit from uh, – some sort of of uh, translation because as Chris pointed out, like a lot of um, a lot of people come from all over the world uh, for particular services, and having a strategy 
for dealing uh, with that and serving customers is important because uh, there are nuances in translation that don't always come over one-to-one when you do uh, Google Translate or, or other things. And depending on how much revenue you're doing, having a, a human translation done might be good, but uh, you know, services like Weeglot are useful. Um, it, for my site uh, right now, like a lot of the traffic that I get that's international uh, comes from areas like India and Pakistan. A lot, a lot of people uh, come to uh, some of the old like uh, code tutorials that I have. That's where I get a lot of a business, uh, not business, but I get a lot of traffic from that currently. So if I was going to do a translation, that might be a place to start. Um, so yeah, definitely something to think about because it is a global market. There's no going backwards. You are literally competing with everybody uh, in the world, uh, especially if it's e-commerce or e-learning or uh, anything like that. So, What did you think of it, Spencer? This is my favorite story because I'm all jacked up on this one. This one I have experienced and I have a very opinionated response. Duh. First of all, in line with what Chris was describing, there's a very simple checklist for why and how you would execute on a multilingual, and it's maybe surprising. Here's how it works out. If you are looking at your site and it is publishing only versus interaction with the audience, that's the first issue. In a social network setting, or if you still believe it or not, have comments activated, that's a completely different question than if you're just publishing one direction. Because as Chris so rightly pointed out, when you publish in one direction, stop at your native language. That's it. You're done. And if it's true that you actually have service people who speak multi-languages who can handle the traffic that comes in, then you'd make a decision to invest in, we have an English site, a French site, a German site, a Chinese site, whatever. But that question is, do you have somebody who natively works in your business who can handle the people who come in, the business clients who come in? Because if you don't, stop. English, if it's your only language you and your team speak, don't do anything beyond English. If you have an English site that goes two ways, where the people can comment and write in and do stuff, then ask yourself, same question, do we really want to have a site where half the answers are in English and half the answers in the comments are in Chinese or, or something else? That's like a bad YouTube video where I, I speak a little of other languages and half the answers are in Russian and Spanish. And it's like, you can't read all the comments without translating everyone. So pick that language. And then when you decide or not to use a service, I have gone down the multi-language route with the plugins and everything else. It's a fool's errand. Absolutely 100%. And Chris really pointed out the best part of it, which is it's a fool's errand because you'll still have to make all your video content over again. You'll still have to arrange with those widgets that don't work with another language or that there's some subcode somewhere. So don't even try. Now, here's my really strange one-sided opinion. I think the whole Tower of Babel biblical story applies here. I am not saying that English is better than Spanish or Chinese or anything else. And it is true that Spanish and Chinese are more prevalent as far as numbers of people speaking. I do speak pretty fluently in Spanish. But I am simply saying that the world seems to be going in a direction of realizing that we all would be better off if at least everybody spoke one common language. And I'm not saying it's 100% sure that it's going to be English, but I know very few Americans and even Brits who are learning Mandarin 
I know a lot of people who speak native Spanish. So I would say it's possible that Spanish could be the universal language, but it's probable that it's going to end up being English, which means all this energy you're wasting right now worrying about this is for nothing because almost everybody who's really going to buy from you in one of those countries where they speak two languages probably already speaks English. And if they can't, they'll get somebody to talk to you because if you don't have a Chinese person, you know, native speaker or a Spanish speaking person, you're wasting your energy anyway. Yeah, I thought they were great points. Thanks for that, Spencer. I'm gonna, um, we've actually discussed literally four stories. So I'm going to cut down the two stories because uh, I know everybody's got stuff to do. So let's go for our tips and tricks and stuff that we think that would help our um, listeners and, and users. And my one is Book Like a Boss. Basically, Book Like the Boss, I've been using it for over a year and a half. And it's a calendar system, but it's a lot more. I only use about a third of its functionality. And the main reason why um, I got into utilising it was I was using Candly, which is a great system. Um, but Candly wouldn't automatically integrate with Zoom at the time. I think they've they've actually rectified that. Um, but at the time, it didn't integrate with Zoom, and I'm a big user of Zoom, which you listeners and viewers um, can see. Um, so it automatically integrated with Zoom, um, and I've been really pleased with it. It's got some bits that are a little, still a little bit rough on the edges, um, but it works and it does a lot. Um, I know you posted it, um, panel, in our Slack channel, but if you could also post in the chat, because I get automatic file that. Spencer, um, have, you, have you got anything this week that might be interesting to our listeners and viewers? Yeah, for anybody who uses Chrome and does any kind of web design at all, there's a Chrome extension called View Background Image, which solves that ever-persistent problem of you're trying to figure out how somebody built something and they're, instead of being an actual image inside of a, you know, a, an image uh, div or something, it is actually the background image. So all you need to do once this is installed is just move your mouse, you click the button on the extension, move your mouse over the image, click it, and it will tell you what the actual image or video or anything else is. Huge time saver, at least when you're trying to emulate other stuff or when you're working on a client site and you're trying to migrate something from one system to another. Oh, that's great. John, have you got anything this week? Yeah, definitely. Uh, one of the stories that got cut was uh, uh, Twitter's declining use and how they're not reporting that. And we talked about the, the you know, cutting Facebook and the other uh, big tech giants from your life. So if you're looking for an alternative uh, social network that's up and coming, uh, check out Mastodon. So I, I, there's a link in there, joinmastodon.org. Uh, maybe it'll be a viable social uh, alternative to Twitter and Facebook. Uh, maybe it won't, but, you know, check it out. All right, that's great. Sally, you got anything to share with the listeners and viewers? You're muted, Sally. Sorry, trained. Um, <clears throat> Bill Erickson has got some great tutorials for theme oh. developers about... Uh, building Gutenberg themes or converting themes to Gutenberg. So uh, you can just head over to uh, BillErickson.net uh, and he's got a, on the blog menu, there's a link to the 
uh, Gutenberg uh, tutorials. Oh, yeah, thanks for that. Eric. I'll have to try and get Eric on the show. I, I did interview him a while ago. Interesting dude, to say the least. Um, Chris, got anything you'd like to share with the listeners and viewers? Yeah, there's a great tool called Uncanny Automator. It's a plugin. It's made by a company that specializes in e-learning and WordPress called Uncanny Owl. But basically what Uncanny Automator does is it's kind of like uh, a little Zapier that works between different popular WordPress tools, especially the ones that you would use if you're creating a learning, an online course or a learning-based membership site. And I just want to list off some of the things you can connect. Um, you can connect BB Press, Buddy Press, Caldera Forms, Contact Form 7, Easy Digital Downloads, Formidable, Gamey Press, Gravity Forms, H5P, Learn Dash, Learn Press, Lifter LMS, Member Press, Ninja Forms, Pop-Up Maker, The Events Calendar, WooCommerce, uh, the WordPress core itself, WP Courseware, WP Fusion, the sponsor of this show, WP LMS, WP Forms, and then Zapier so you can get to a thousand other apps. So just to give a real quick example of how you might use this, let's say you use the events calendar plugin and you are you sell events tickets and, and somebody enrolls or signs up to attend one of your events. You could also use this tool to automatically enroll them in a course that uh, on an online course that accompanies the event. So that's just a simple example of how you might use Uncanny Automator. That's at automatorplugin.com. Oh, that's great. Thanks for that. Um, Spencer, how can people find out more about you and what you're up to? Yeah, terrific. If you're interested in anything to do with building a profitable WordPress membership site, marketing automation, uh, we're at wplaunchify.com or on YouTube at wplaunchify. And John, how do people find out more about you and what you're up to? You can find me at my website, which is LockdownSEO.com. And also go on YouTube, search hashtag LockdownSEO. Any kind of boogie videos from Germany on there? No, I don't have any booty videos. Sorry oh. to disappoint. It's good stuff though, folks. I, I recommend that you go there. Um, Sally, how can people find out more about you and what you're up to? Uh, yes, well, at my age, SEO is much more interesting than booty. So uh, 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 find me at uh, WPFangirl.com or I am uh, at Sally Getch on Twitter. And uh, if you can call my name, you'll find me. I am unique. The interwebs. That's great. Thanks for that, Sally. And Chris, how can people find out more about you and what you're up to? You can find me at lifterlms.com. You can also check out my personal YouTube channel. Just look for Chris Badgett on YouTube. And uh, check out my podcast, which is called LMS Cast. It's for course creators. And I actually just recently interviewed the creator of the automate, Uncanny Automator that I mentioned. That episode's going to be a little bit before it comes out. But um, those are the three best places to find me. That's great. And before we go, folks, I just wanted to tell you about a webinar, me and my Wednesday WP Tonic host, Cindy Nicholson, is going to be doing at the end of this month on Thursday the 28th at 9am Pacific Standard Time. If you're into courses and looking to build a course, we've got the seven essential things that you need to know before you attempt to build that course. And that, like I say, is a free webinar. I will be giving a to one of the live listeners and viewers of the webinar a, a free 
um, support package for the year. And Cindy's got some freebies that she will be giving away to the live listeners and viewers of the webinar. So like I say, that's at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the 28th. And how do you register for it? That's what you're thinking, isn't it? Well, it's quite simple. There'll be a link in the show notes of this particular episode, or you can go to WP Tonic Backstrike webinar and you can register for the webinar and it's going to be fun. Um, we'll see you next week when we have another great panel, folks. Bye. Thanks for listening to WP Tonic, the podcast that gives you a spoonful of WordPress medicine twice a week.